First Samuel chapter 10. We pick up at verse 13 tonight. First Samuel chapter 10 at verse 13. Just a little bit. Now, Heavenly Father, as we always pray that you would assist us by your presence, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our understanding. We can't make sense of spiritually discernible truths without your help, God. So we pray that you'd open our hearts, help us to hear what God is saying to each one of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. When we last tuned in, Saul, uh, really a magnificent specimen of what sometimes we call a man's man, uh, has just been anointed Israel's first king. And a complete surprise to Saul himself, actually. Uh, Israel, as you'll recall, uh, is tired of being different from all the other kids in the neighborhood uh, or in the nations around them uh, who serve strong, handsome kings, uh, who live in luxurious palaces. They want one of those, too. Because up until now, all they've had was the Lord, you know, and so they, you know, you can't parade the Lord out there. He's invisible and all of that. And so they're saying, listen, uh, in this desire, of course, uh, was a rejection of the Lord who was their king up until that point, as I just said. Um, and he was already in that position and he was doing a pretty good job of it, I might add. The Lord had uh, now has given them a man who fits their fleshly desires for a king to a T. Uh, he's very impressive, this Saul is, on the outside, but spiritually empty on the inside. So here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we're going to pick up at verse 13. Now, uh, as you will recall, Saul's beautiful locks of hair on his handsome head are still greasy from Samuel's flask of anointing oil. He has just poured out on him uh, there in a private inauguration where Saul is really officially has become king in the opening verses of chapter 10. And now after Samuel has anointed Saul, you'll remember that he's given him three miraculous things or signs or confirmations that are going to help uh, Saul really grasp what just happened to him and to understand how the Lord is working in his life. You'll remember that Saul's told, uh, number one, as you leave this place now as Israel's king, uh, random guys are going to walk up to you and solve the mystery of the lost donkeys. Check. That's happened. Number two, you'll meet three random men on their way to a church barbecue. Uh, they will offer you two of their three loaves of bread, and you'll take them. Check. That's happened. And lastly, and most significantly, you will run into a group of young men who are on fire for the Lord. They're returning from a church service. Uh, worshiping as they go, they're singing, they're playing instruments, they're preaching and proclaiming uh, and prophesying, and guess what? You are going to join them. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Saul, with great power, and you'll have a change of heart. 
Now, it, it's complicated because he has a change of heart, but when we look at the fruit of Saul's life in the coming chapters and his slow unraveling and his steady decline, we understand that really it stopped there with a change of heart. He didn't have a change of life. Judas had a change of heart. Do you remember? He realized that, oh, oh no, look what I've done, and with tears, he took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it back at the Pharisees. And he said, hey, listen, I've done a bad thing. And the Pharisees said, what is that to us? Handle it yourself. And he went out and hung himself. So he had a change of heart, and he was around the Lord for three years. And unfortunately, it looks like Saul is, is that kind of guy. It's too bad because the Holy Spirit's right there and, and he's so close and, and, and yet so far. And so uh, with that said, he does indeed have some changes and his old acquaintances are quite astonished. And, uh, and so the last sign was fulfilled. All right. So as I mentioned last week, beyond the miraculous wonder of those three predictions, the timing uh, that he's going to be able to, uh, that Samuel, that is, has a word from the Lord that he predicts the timing and these random events. Beyond all of that, there was a message in these confirmations saying to Saul, listen, Saul, you've got a new relationship with me. Three things are important through these confirmations. We mentioned them last week, but they're important to repeat. Number one, the Lord can solve all your problems. Number two, the Lord can provide for all your needs. And number three, the Lord can empower you to serve him and become the man he has called you to be. Those three things are relevant to anybody the Lord calls to come to know him. And I'm not sure that Saul ever got that. And I'm wondering if we do. So continuing now, we're going to pick up those three things just happened. Uh, Saul has been prophesying. Now remember, Samuel's told Saul to go to the high place and wait seven days for him to come. And picking up now at verse 13, you're all caught up. After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked Saul and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, and tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul replied, uh, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he didn't tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. So Roman numeral number one, if you're taking notes, a bad sign. Um, Saul's reluctance to share his conversion experience, or shall I call it his apparent uh, conversion experience. So verse 14, we find that Saul's reunited uh, with a curious uncle. His uncle wants to know uh, what's been going on because his uncle was aware uh, a week ago when the boy went out, well, the young man went out with the servant to find uh, the uncle's brother, which is Saul's dad's donkeys. So he wants to know. He sees Saul after a week long absence and he says, where in blue blazes have you boys been? 
Now, Saul says, looking for the donkeys. And the uncle furrows up his brow and pauses and says, and? And he says, and we couldn't find him, so we went to Samuel, period. He doesn't offer anything else. And then there's dead silence. So the uncle's looking. Now, you've been to Samuel. Your hair is all greasy and oily. Hmm. And pray tell, what did Samuel say to you? And Samuel says, he said, the donkeys have been found. But not a word about any of the miraculous events. Now, if you've been with us, a lot has gone on to talk about. So it's a bad sign for a reason. Nothing concerns a pastor more than after someone responds to an altar call and has a supposed experience with God and then doesn't tell anybody about it. I've had that happen on several occasions. I'll, I'll talk to somebody after service who uh, sheds a few tears, raises their hand, and gets a little prayer, and, and then they're gone, and then they come back a month later, and I check in with them and find out that really nothing much has happened. They haven't told anybody. How did your parents take the news? Oh, they can never know. They can never know that you became a Christian? Why can't they know? They wouldn't be happy. Okay, uh, did, uh, do you have friends at work or did you tell anybody at school or anything? Oh, no, no. This is, well, you know, that's always kind of disconcerting. Here's a quote. When the Lord truly works in a powerful supernatural way in the heart, the lips quite naturally overflow with words that give God praise. When God is at work but the lips are silent, there's usually some kind of serious disconnect somewhere. Now, why didn't he tell his uncle anything? Well, maybe embarrassment, maybe fear, anxiety, or, or maybe uh, a real work down deep is lacking. He doesn't say anything because, quite frankly, there's nothing to say from down deep in his heart. Interesting to me that in Romans chapter 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it goes on to say, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. There is something very important about speaking in the connection of salvation because I think what the point here is is that the lips are an accurate measure of what's going on in our hearts. And Jesus said that very thing in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. Now, uh, Saul didn't need to offer a big, pompous, proud explanation when Uncle says, you know, what, what's up? And he says, you know what, Uncle? I'm king now. That's what's up. That, that wouldn't have worked either, because I would be giving him a hard time if he had done that as well. Now, um, many men are by nature men of few words. It's all right that he didn't go back a chattering evangelist. It, it, it's, it's okay. But, you know, it would have been nice if when Uncle said, hey, where'd you go? 
oh man, Uncle Benjamin, listen, I've met the Lord. I mean, I don't have all the answers, but God's got good stuff in store for me. I don't even understand half of it. I went to Samuel thinking the donkeys were lost, you know, looking for some little guidance about donkeys. And, and he started telling me all this stuff about what's in my heart. And he started predicting things, people I'd meet. And I met them and everything. What was wrong with that? Why couldn't you say, you know, wow, just wow. Okay. Even just a plain, wow, man, can I tell you later? I can't even go into it all now. But nothing, no, no, just about donkeys. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it just says uh, something's not quite right. You know what's interesting, and I am on a little bit of a bunny trail, but follow me happily if you don't mind. It's uh, interesting, while Saul hides what the Lord has done in his heart, supposedly, his predecessor, the true king, King David, writes in Psalm 40, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth. Just really interesting to me. So we need to move on. Uh, like it or not, Saul, it's time to tell the world what the Lord is doing with you. God is going to out Saul now in the midst of the huge assembly um, as God's choice for their king. So 17 through 19. Uh, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, No, set a king over us. So now, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So Roman numeral number two, God's disclaimer on what he's allowing. So the Lord is going to present Saul as king by a miraculous process similar to like drawing uh, lots or rolling sanctified dice or flipping a coin. Uh, God was in total control, but first he wanted everyone to know, number one, I'm going to go through with this. You're going to get what you want. I'm going to give you the king that you've been bellyaching for years for, but just before I do it, and it's just moments away, folks, I just let the record show I'm not very happy, and you're making a bad choice. God works his plan and factors his will with our will into his sovereign program. Isn't that amazing? Our bad choices, our good choices, our sin, our failure, uh, and our obedience, everything is factored in, and he's still in control. How does that all work together? Well, I, I thought, you know, however it works together that God is sovereignly uh, controlling everything and I am also free to choose and he allows me some of my free choices or all of them, really, and somehow it's working together. We can't really figure it out, but we can know a few things about how he works. Number one, he's working for the good of those who love him. So however it's working... It's working for the good of anybody who loves him. 
Number two, he's working to bring redemption. He's always looking with my choice and my decision to bring something redemptive out of it. I mean, to increase faith, to deepen character, to enhance intimacy in prayer, to complete spiritual maturity, to conform us to the image of Christ, to bring others to know him. Number three, he's working to bring glory to himself, to honor his word and to keep his promises. And number four, he's working to bring people, as I mentioned, into a saving relationship with him. And so he clearly says, uh, listen, Israel, your choice is bad here. I'm not very happy about it. Verse 18, he says, I thought I was doing a pretty good job. Uh, can I just bring up a few instances? Uh, do you remember Egypt? You guys were enslaved there. You were powerless. World power Egypt. You were slaves. You had no weapons. You were helpless. You cried out to me. And your king, which I thought I was, I came down and busted you out of the mud pits with 10 plagues. Do you recall that? And then I led you through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and, and rained down bread for you. I took care of you, and with all of those nations coming against you, not one of them prevailed. You prevailed against them. Do you remember the time that you needed more daylight, and I caused the sun to stay at high noon all day long? Do you remember that? I thought I was a good king. I don't know. What do you guys think? That's what he was saying to them. And they're like, have the same look you had on your face, I think. So for the... For the record, he's saying in verse uh, 19, you're rejecting your God who's been saving you out of all of these troubles. I've asked you over and over again, would you reconsider? And you said, no, we want a king. And so now you're going to get a king. But for the record, you're saying we'd rather have a human ruler over us. Thank you very much. It's really a violation of the first commandment. You know, not to put something or somebody before uh, the relationship with God. We look at them and say, you know, how silly is that to reject God after he's done so much for you? But yet when we turn to things and activities and people uh, to replace what we are looking for really ultimately in God, we're doing the same thing as they so time out, I do want to talk a little bit about the theology of if God knows this is a bad move for his people, why does he include it in his will? Why does he let it happen? I mean, if he knows that what I want will ultimately hurt me, why does he let me have it? Well, first of all, I think that he does not let us have a lot of our bad choices, that when you get to heaven... You'll find out just what, how many times God saved you and from having your own way. Here's a nice quote. When we get to heaven, we'll realize there were a multitude of times God saved us from our own bad choices and rebellion by not letting them materialize at all. But we cannot do away with the clear indication in Scripture that God honors our free will to do right and to do wrong and works that into his plan. I think I read the best comment uh, that put it all in a nutshell for me. He says, God says to us, to Israel, to the church, to every Christian, I'm going to have my way. Do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? 
And Israel, you just chose the hard way. No. Okay, so it's pretty clear. Uh, by the way, it's really clear what a bad choice is, isn't it? It's not that hard. All right, moving on, 20 through 24. When Samuel brought all the tribes, uh, now they're going uh, to find King Saul in the sea of faces, all right? When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found, so they inquired further of the Lord. Has this guy come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he's hidden himself among the baggage. They ran out and brought him out. And as he, yeah, just what we need in a king. <laughs> they ran out and brought him and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, long live the king. So number three, introducing Saul, <laughs> casting lots. So now you will notice with me that even though the Lord's been rejected, he's still the king calling the shots so really even when we're doing our own thing he's still doing his which is running our lives and running the universe even with our bad choices so it it looks like the process of selection involves remember those two they're called you meme and the thumb meme and the high priest had this ornate pouch that was to be over his heart and inside the pouch were these two uh, pieces. They were either like uh, wooden objects or stones of different colors or texture. But one was a yes and one was a no. And it was clear to the priest which was which. And so it could also mean guilty or not guilty. But that it was yes or no, guilty or not guilty. And so when a case came before, they would pray. The high priest would reach into his heart and pull out the answer with prayer, and of course, that symbolizes the Christian who has the Holy Spirit in their hearts, who prays and reaches in and can find uh, wisdom in our time of need. And so uh, imagine with me the sea of faces, hundreds of thousands of people, and Saul's thinking to himself, is he really going to be able to call me out in, in, a, in a sea of faces like this? And so uh, here's how it worked. Uh, everybody knows God is going to take from this Colosseum of a sea of Hebrews, uh, he's going to come up with one man, and everybody's aware of it, and you could probably hear a pin drop. And so first, the, uh, which tribe is he in of the 12 tribes? So 12 representatives of those 12 tribes parade by, and boom, the tribe of Benjamin is Cho cho chosen. <laughs> I'm not going to spit it out. He reaches in and the, I'm not even going to try for the thumb meme and the oom meme, but he reaches in and bingo, tribe of Benjamin. Then the next, the, the thousands of clans are represented. And then bam, Matri. And then Matri comes forward. And then which of the hundreds of families? And then Kish comes forward. Kish is Saul's dad. Now I'm thinking, the uncle, 
is looking around and realizes Samuel, Saul, oily hair, our family, my brother's kids. Ah, now he's connecting the dots, so he knows. Well, which of the sons is the man? Saul's name is called out. Umim, out, bingo. We got our king. And everyone looks around, where is he? <laughs> and he's doing such a good job of hiding that they need to pray about it. Okay, so they need some divine assistance. And they say, Lord, where is he? Is he here? And the Lord says, he's hiding with the luggage. And they go and they grab him. They pull him out. Now here's a guy who's got a lot of baggage. <laughs> Jay. <laughs> That's all your fault. I'm blaming you. <laughs> Jay lives with us, and all he does is do puns all day long. So if it doesn't go over, it's his fault. All right, moving on. I do want to stop and say, have you ever played hide-and-seek with the Lord? Uh, let me suggest to you that he has an unfair advantage. <laughs> uh, he, he's really good at this game, all right? He doesn't use Google Maps. He doesn't, use, he doesn't need Google Earth. He doesn't need, you know, click here and it's getting bigger. Oh, there, I think I see you. You know, it's kind of like when you play hide-and-seek with your three-year-old, right? They think, you know, you're counting 20, 19, 18, and they take like two steps away, and then they cover their face, and they think, well, I can't see Dad. Therefore, he can't see me. <laughs> and then you open your eyes, they're, they're like right there. With God, you know, it's like playing in God's living room with no furniture. I mean, it, it just, you know, when he says, Adam, where are you? The Lord's you know, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> that's saying, hey, dude, what have you just done? That you, you know, that's not like, I can't find you. Where are you? Come out. <laughs> yeah, so don't, don't do that because you know what? Guess what? You could be here even listening to this or wherever you are listening to this tape. He knows where you are physically, but he knows where you are at spiritually. So why even bother playing games, withdrawing, doing your own thing, uh, wandering? He already gets to the place you're going before you even get there. It's so unfair. Just don't even bother. You know, let, let the Lord find you. And can I just say this? Why? Why? Does it make sense to hide from the God who loves you so much he would become a human being and die for you? He loves you. He came to save you and to heal you and to bless you. And there's, I, I, what is it? We're just really messed up. Amen? Yeah. All right. Uh, Spurgeon said this in his sermon, hiding among the stuff. Hiding among the stuff shows how both believers and unbelievers can be hidden among the equipment and the stuff, avoiding the crown God has for them. There may be some of you here present, this is Spurgeon, who may be doing precisely what Saul did, only you're doing it more foolishly than he. He did but hide away from an earthly crown, but you're hiding from a heavenly one. Now, I want to talk to you about Saul hiding in the luggage there um, because it's serious. It's a fine line between humility and insecurity. 
Humility is a godly character quality, and it's very beneficial. It recognizes God's greatness and our limitedness and our dependency. But the thing about humility is it's selfless. It, it's concerned for God and his kingdom and for others. Insecurity is born out of unbelief and self-centeredness. If I fail, what will people think of me? Oh, no, I can't do it. God can't use me. Uh, people don't like me. Self-centeredness and being insecure. It breeds jealousy. Insecure people are envious. Uh, they are angry, and they are often uh, bitter. Now, for the insecure person, all of life is about an effort to maintain image, to control perception and manipulate people and circumstances all around your fears and your anxieties. God cannot use insecure people very well. You will find that Saul is insecure and he never lets the Lord heal him of that flaw. And he makes his decisions out of his insecurities and his entire ministry unravels because of a main issue is his insecurity. Now, Bible characters are initially very hesitant. Our Bible heroes are hesitant, but they're, they're, they're humble. That's not the same thing. Mary is dumbfounded when the angel says, hey, you're going to deliver the Messiah. And she says, no, I, I don't think so, really. Wow. Uh, but nevertheless, may it be unto me as you have said. There's the difference there. Moses Oh, who am I? I'm not a very good speaker. Are you kidding me? I'm going to go down to at Pharaoh, and what if they don't believe? But he says, nevertheless, he goes, doesn't he? I mean, he whines a lot, and the Lord gets really upset with him. But <laughs> we all have that, and everybody's thinking, well, who isn't insecure? That's like telling me, who isn't a sinner? Just because everybody struggles with it doesn't mean it's okay and doesn't mean it's not lethal. It is lethal to your marriage. Insecure spouses are the worst when it comes to always imagining something's going on. There's no trust. There's no intimacy because they're so insecure. They're projecting everything that's not even existent. You can't heal a marriage like that. There is nothing I can do to help a marriage where somebody is relentlessly insecure and not opening to let God heal them of that insecurity. We must never allow our own sense of inadequacy and insecurity and self-consciousness to get in the way of obeying God's call and commands. It will ruin everything. Ask King Saul. For me... You know, I, it's an emotional brokenness, but it can become sin as well. God says, uh, my grace is enough. And you say, uh-uh, 
no, it isn't. You don't know me. He says, yeah, I do know you. I created you. And I said, my grace is enough. And that you can do all things through Christ that gives you strength. Uh-uh. No. So, so there's this defiance and unbelief in somebody who, who persists in being insecure. There are too many scriptures that say, you're the apple of my eye. I'm changing you into a new person. Uh, if God is for me, who can be against me? I mean, every other scripture is the antidote to being insecure. You can be hesitant and you can, you can be humble in your approach and you can be ultra-dependent on God, but you can't con continue in insecurity. One more, one more uh, line here. Look at the next king, the real king's attitude. King David writes, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. You brought in the path beneath me so that my ankles don't give way. That's why I chose this uh, psalm for us to read this evening. You can't read the psalms and not feel confidence in the Lord. And so like Peter, if God calls you to do something that you feel, I could never do that. He says, Peter, uh, come to me then. Come to me on the water. And he says, okay. And he gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. I mean, this is the symbol of all Christian living. Everything God wants you to do is like walking on the water. But he says, come on, you can do it. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm going to make it possible. And we need to stop saying no and start saying anything you want me to do in my life. The answer is yes. Amen. All right, Saul's drug out from among the suitcases and the duffel bags. He's brought center stage, and Samuel again emphasizes his outward appearance. He says, look at the guy. He's bigger, taller, more handsome than any guy around, and Israel is gaga and falls in love with him. Long, long live the king. They like what they see. So two holdout verses. We'll finish up with two verses. Uh, verses 24 to 27, three verses. Samuel explains to the people now the regulations of the kingship he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited before the Lord then Samuel dismissed the people each to his own home Saul also went out to his home in Gebeah accompanied by valiant men whose heart hearts God had touched but some troublemakers said how can this guy save us they despised him and brought him no gifts but Saul kept silent. Now, Saul did a good thing here. He has some good qualities. Now, lastly, number four, the dreaded 3%. King Saul now knows what seminary professors teach ministerial students, and it applies to everybody, really. There will always be people you can't make happy 3% of every congregation at one time or another are not happy about something. Now, <laughs> I don't know who the 3% are right at the moment, but maybe it's lower here, verse 25. Samuel, or higher, apparently, on the front row. 
Samuel schools Saul now first in verse 25. Uh, out of what commentators think he read from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, which are guidelines for both rulers and subjects, uh, and so probably about proper servitude, like Jesus taught. You know, Jesus said, I, the Son of God, have come not to be served, but to serve and to, to lead by serving with humility and not to lord it over people and abuse people. And so that was probably what the guidelines were. But finally, all has been said and done, and everybody's off to their homes now. And uh, clearly there's a royal uh, cabinet forming with relationships and men, uh, good men, are being uh, kind of gravitating to Saul. Now, the last verse is very interesting. Verse 27, the 3%, the disgruntled troublemakers are scowling. They bring no gifts. They talk smack about Saul. They're big party poopers. And so uh, here's, Saul remains silent. And here's how I want to close. A nice quote here. The Hebrew is still very striking. It says he was as though he had been deaf. So in the English, it says he remained silent or he was silent. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's really saying he, he played deaf. He pretended not to hear. Let me quote the commentator. He did hear every word. It had struck deep into his heart, but he was as though he were deaf. It is a great power when a man or a woman can act as though they were deaf to slander, deaf to insults, and deaf to unkind and uncharitable words, and treat them as though they had not been spoken, turning from the person who's slandering to God, trusting ourselves to the Lord, and letting him defend us. So I want to close with these thoughts here. If you ever are going to do anything at all for the Lord, you will be criticized. Um, not everybody's going to like you or think that you're doing it right. Not everybody will want to join your fan club. Now Saul did a good thing. He played deaf and said nothing. Here's what we need to do. Listen to godly counsel Listen to constructive criticism from people we respect and who love us and who we love and who walk with the Lord. But we are to ignore critical fault finders. We ignore insults and unkind people's remarks who are blowing off steam and lashing out. Proverbs 12, verse 16, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent person, a wise woman, a wise man, overlooks an insult. People waste so much time and energy fighting every little thing that's ever said about them, texting, defending yourself with emails and phone calls and making sure you spin everybody around you because somebody's out there talking smack about you. The older I get, the less I do any of that. I don't have time to go out there and try to fix everybody's opinion of me with people who are not happy with me. I don't know of anything at the moment, but I'm just talking in first person. <laughs> I, I meant of you and us and all of us. We don't need to be doing that. We just need to be 
looking to the Lord. Let me uh, give you the scripture that has ministered so much to me uh, as I grow older. Proverbs 26, verse 2 says, Like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. And here's how the Lord has applied that to my heart. When there's talking smack or somebody says something unkind or something untrue, it really can get under your skin, especially when it's not true. The Bible says that's kind of like a, a swallow that's flying around. It's out there. It's going darting everywhere. You know what? But it will never land because it's groundless. If there's no truth in it, it says an undeserving, slanderous remark will never land. It will never come in and make any uh, significant impact because people are smarter than you think. Because they know the truth and the truth wins out. And every time I'm tempted to say, oh, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to run over here. Oh, no, somebody doesn't like me and they're saying something. If it's undeserving it's out there. The Lord says it's just flying around. It will never land. People are smart. They know the character of the person speaking. They know the character of the person they're slandering. Leave it to the Lord. It'll fly around. It'll dart. And then just as the sun sets, it just disappears. It'll never come and root itself because there's no truth in it. And it's undeserving. Let it go. Let it go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love and the messages that, and the lessons we can learn even from, from uh, 3,000 years ago. These folks making their way in faith under your sovereign lead. We pray that you would help us to learn by watching and listening in Jesus' name, amen.